save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World, and I'm Ellie Weiss. As there have been so many headlines across the country about mountain lions and places where we think big feline carnivores shouldn't be, such as shopping malls and urban backyards, we've been discussing our American lion, the cat of many names, in efforts to learn more about them, their habits, and to educate our listeners so we can all better understand this elusive predator. Today, my guest is Dr. Quinton Martins, the Principal Investigator and Director of Living with Lions, a project of Audubon Canyon Ranch Conservation in Action, a community conservation program centered on California's North Bay mountain lion population. Quinton has over 25 years of field experience working in wilderness areas throughout much of Africa, Saudi Arabia, and the USA. Dr. Martins is a skilled trapper and leading expert on large felids. So, without further ado, Quinton, let's get started. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Good morning. It's so um, I'm so happy to have you here. We've been trying to get this going for quite some time, and your name has been in the headlines a little bit lately with um, the um, capture and relocation of some of the lions in California. So that's what we're going to talk about um, today. Why don't you give us a little background of how you came from South Africa and leopards to California and our lions. Well, um, yeah. Thanks for the the opportunity. Uh, I suppose the um, you know for me it was a natural progression to to move from one large feeler to to um, another analogous species in in um, in a different area with new challenges. Um, I. My background, I suppose, you know, you started out in the safari industry, working in some really amazing wild places in Africa, uh, guiding people in wilderness areas, and and got to track many large cats, lions, and leopards, you know, out in these areas, tracking them on foot and and um, finding them and, and allowing people to to observe these animals in the wild. Um, and, you know, after about 10 years of, of doing that, I, you know, the, the penny dropped as to, um, you know, how important these wilderness areas were, you know, for the future, um, you know, or the future of these areas, how important it was to conserve these these places, and um, I ended up going back to university to study a degree in zoology as a you know so-called mature student, I suppose, um, and and uh, ended up setting up my own leopard conservation program in South Africa, which focused on conserving a, a rather unique um, subpopulation of mountain leopards in the Cape. These very ghost-like 
um, elusive creatures that were um, pretty much half the size of a typical uh, typical bush felt leopard. And um, you know, once I got, you know, there were clearly challenges for these animals, mostly human-wildlife conflict-related challenges and um, habitat loss-related challenges. And, you know, once I got stuck into this project, I realized how absolutely um, important and significant the use of these iconic charismatic predators were in, in drawing attention to broader conservation issues. Um, you know, it was so much easier to get somebody's attention talking about leopards than, you know, if I was doing some um, research on on some innocuous, um, you know, unsexy species like a saber-toothed field mouse or something like that. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the iconic, glamorous, big and furry species do catch our attention more than the others. And what's good about them is they're also considered umbrella and keystone species. And what happens to their habitat cascades up and down the trophic levels, yeah? Correct. So I figured, well, if you can, if you can go, if you set out to try and protect leopards who would then be you know an umbrella um, species in in the environment I was working in in order to do that one needs to ensure that the building blocks in that system are in place and that then takes a form of broader um, habitat conservation and um, you know it, it made sense from that point of view, point of view. and because of these animals being so um, enigmatic and and um, and um, attracting so much attention, we were actually able to fund all sorts of different projects um, which fell under the umbrella of the leopard, if you like. We were able to fund research work on viros eagles, on ungulates, on smaller mammals, um, you know, and, and setting up education projects and community projects and all sorts of things. So. After you know, um, after having set up the Cape Leopard Trust and then running it for 11 years, you know, I'd, I'd seen the power of this model, um, and and you know, started looking at this on a broader scale, on a more global scale, and and began to get exposure in other countries and um, other continents, including um, in the USA, and. Um, you know, my move to America, you know, and in particular California, um, was brought about through um, an invitation to work with Dr. Rodney Jackson on the snow with the Snow Leopard Conservancy. And you know, snow leopard—you couldn't get anything more charismatic and you know iconic than a snow leopard. I think um, just such an unbelievable cat. Um, and being in California, it it seemed. You know, a little strange to be talking to people about snow leopards, you know, in Asia. And one of the ways that I wanted to do this was through contextualizing it by setting up a mountain lion project. So I started a mountain lion project here in California to um, kind of contextualize this and um, ended up this being the focus of my work because um, there are some real challenges and also gaps in the market, if you like, in in this area, um, where I felt that my experience would would contribute 
in some way to the conservation of of mountain lions here, but also you know um, to push this idea of um, improving our conservation methods using uh, sort of innovative ways of you know marketing conservation, if you like, using um, uh, species in this particular case or different different models. This is such a great idea. I mean, this is the first time in our cougar conversations on this program, Our Wild World, that we're able to actually, you know, create a link and a parallel between what's going on with Africa's big cats and how it relates to what's going on with our biggest cat. So um, this is great. So California, uh, it's the mountain lions are protected. So I'm, I'm sure that has part of the issue of why it was I don't want to use the word easy, but uh, conducive to setting up living with lions in California because they're, you can't kill them without particular predation permits where in other places across the West, lions are not protected. So you'd have more challenges in, uh, you know, let's say here in Colorado, Montana, or Wyoming. So uh, you're with the Audubon Canyon Ranch Conservation Program, right? Correct, yes. And your project is called Living with Lions. And it came to be because of what you just said, your experience with uh, the snow leopard and the leopard, the Cape Mountain leopard in South Africa. So why don't you give us a little um, rundown of what mountain lions and leopards have in common? Sure. And, you know, so if, if, if you don't mind, I'd actually just sort of, add to what you mentioned a little earlier um, in with the conservation side of things in California um, you know the the w- one interesting thing and maybe we can discuss it more at length later but um, is that since mountain lion hunting was banned in California the number of mountain lions killed on an annual basis is in fact higher now than it was um, during you know when that ban uh, when when hunting was in effect, so um, these these mortalities have been mostly um, related to depredation incidents and could be attributed to either um, the uh, the manner in which the permits are issued and how easy it is to get a depredation permit, as well as um, you know the possibility that mountain lion numbers have have possibly increased in areas where there are more uh, people, where there's more uh, human uh, mountain lion interaction. Well, uh, let's, let's stay on this now because this is, we were going to get to this later, but we're on it now. So let's stick with it. That was one of my questions. Are we seeing more mountain lions in California? And is that one of the reasons more of them are being killed and that we see them in headlines? Are they dispersed? This is several questions all wrapped up into one, and then I'll let you run with it. Are they dispersing males? Are they orphans due to the loss of the mother? And, you know, you'd mentioned depredation. What is causing the depredation? Other animals? Or is it poaching and human conflicts and killing cats because of perceived or real livestock conflict? And then there's, of course, the, the, the fear of attacks on people. Correct, yeah. Well, in California, it's, um, you know, it's, 
there, the main causes of mortality would be depredation permits um, and then uh, car strikes and in um, some cases, um, you know, disease-related, uh, you know, there have been some cases of, of mortality due to secondary poisoning from rodenticides. Um, yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get into that a little later. Let, yeah. um, for one, one one quick second, let's define what a depredation permit is for the folks who don't understand. Well, it's it's a it's a permit that gets issued by the state when um, you know, and in most cases, we're a landowner. It's called a, a take permit um, or a depredation permit. But essentially, if you have an issue where a mountain lion has killed, um, you know, your uh, one of your livestock animals or a pet, or even has put you or your family in danger um, in any way, you have the right to have that animal um, killed. And if you request in California, the law states that if you re- if you request a permit. Um, in a case like this, the state is legally obliged to issue you with a permit. So if you have a pet gerbil, for instance, that um, happens to just, you know, this is taking it to, you know, a little far. But the, the, the from a legal point of view, if you had a pet gerbil and a mountain lion decided to eat it, um, you, you could effectively push to have a permit issued to have that mountain lion killed. Um, the same... You know, with if you have a cat, your pet cat, and you leave your cat out at night, and your cat gets um, eaten by a mountain lion, which they do quite a lot in our area, um, then you can have a, you could have a permit issued to have the mountain lion killed. However, you know, if you leave your cat out at night and you know it walks across the road and somebody in their truck drives over it, you are not allowed to go and shoot the driver of the truck. So. Um, it is a bit of a strange thing that um, you know there these rules apply in in, in cases like this, which it, you know don't take into account that it's actually the landowner or you know his responsibility to look after those animals, which is something which we're focusing a lot on with this project to say, well, you know, actually you need to take responsibility to look after your animals. Absolutely. So. Um what I'm hearing you say is, you know, as how we look at carnivores, even in a state like California where they're protected, is rather antiquated and um, puts the burden on the wildlife rather than putting the burden on the landowner, whether it's a livestock, their gerbil, or their cat. And um, I think we're going to address a lot of that in a little bit when we talk about um, alternatives to depredation permits and how to as the point of this whole program is live with lions. So um, we've got a couple minutes left in this section. Um, What happens is, is the landowner allowed to kill um, and take out the, the lion or is someone like you called in to remove it? And if it's not going to be euthanized uh, due to wildlife management predation stuff, when are you called in, and what is your role? Well, the once the permit is issued, it's kind of up to the landowner um, as to how they deal with 
um, the case. And and usually what happens is um, wildlife services in you know, depending on which county you're in, wildlife services would be called because a lot of these folk we're talking you know in in our study we have not yet been working with commercial livestock farmers. These the the conflict we've been experiencing has mostly been with people with small numbers of livestock animals, we could call them hobby farmers or small-scale farmers or non-commercial farmers, but people with a handful of goats or sheep or people with conflict with um, their pets being eaten or something like that. So a lot of these folk are not exactly, you know, um, rancher-type people who would take this, you know, uh, take action themselves. So they, they would then call somebody to, to help them um, trap and kill the animal um, and usually that's that's through either um, the uh, ag- agricultural department related or you know um, a commercial trapper in the area who provides the services uh, and and um, sometimes landowners do 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 the um, killing themselves. Okay, well you know this is a really good spot where we're going to just step away for a break because we have a lot of uh, great information to cover. So, listeners, we're listening to Dr. Quentin Martins, uh, lion specialist, leopard specialist, and we're talking about the lions in California and his work with the Living with Lions Project. So, stick with us, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. News. Opinion. Hear me. 
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Dr. Quentin Martins. And we're talking about living with lions in California. So we ended our first section with um, trying to get a better understanding of what mountain lions are attacking in California and the options that people have. And uh, that it's not large scale livestock that Dr. Martins is working with. It's more the small hobby farmer, people who have one or more acres and usually keep their livestock out at night, which is a great attractant for a mountain lion. So um, I had asked you, Quentin, um, you had said the state is usually called in and a depredation permit is issued and either the landowner can take care of the problem or the state does. So when in this point are you and living with lions called in? Well, we have an agreement with the Department of Fish and Wildlife here in California that um, we do not interfere in any of these situations. And um, it's it's only if the landowner um, calls us that we engage with them and and then share information which would hopefully mitigate the situation. And I guess this... This is where the outreach component of our project is so important because the more people we're able to get this message out to, you know, the more people know about this project and the more they have an option to call us because in almost all of these cases, we've been able to to share information which had the landowner change their mind about having the lion killed. Um, so having that option is, is really important and you know, it's quite tricky in our area um, because of the sheer volume, the sheer density of people that live here. To give you some kind of idea of what we're talking about, in one male mountain lion's territory, we could draw a polygon around that that um, that the range of that lion, and we've counted up to seventeen thousand private land parcels in one cat's territory. So that, that creates this incredible inherent risk or threat to mountain lions in this area because essentially each land parcel represents a risk factor of some sort um, and is in fact several orders of magnitude higher inherent risk than you know, any other self-respecting mountain lion would have in in um, you know a wild area like Montana or in Wyoming or something like that, where perhaps a lion would have ten properties. Um, I mean, sorry, a hundred properties or you know maybe two hundred properties in in its its territory. Um, so how does one reach? You know, how do you communicate to seventeen thousand people that 
you know, and and maybe maybe half of those or maybe seventy five percent of those have some kind of um, pet or animal that could well become you know a snack for a mountain lion, and if they are not amenable to to this, you know, could end up in the the death um, of that specific individual. So when when that does happen, we're we're sort of going all over the place, but you're triggering questions in my mind. So we'll just go with this flow. So when a mountain lion is removed, um, one question is: Are they normally males, uh, dispersing males, or adult males, or are they females with kittens, or are they orphaned kittens? Well. Um I find that a very interesting uh, discussion because the typically what's happening is that depredating cats, you know, uh, mountain lions that have been responsible for livestock losses, um, you know, in particular, it seems that from the evidence from the department and that um, it seems to have a male, a strong male bias, um, and you know, we we on our project have um, really good evidence to show one that all mountain lions kill pets or livestock, and and I would say that you know the likelihood is is that in reality any mountain lions, um, you know, living in an area where there are people are likely at some point in time to to do that. Um, and we've had three mountain lions killed under depredation permits, and all three of those have been young dispersal animals. However, the the territorial males um, have been more responsible for more livestock losses. And when you look at um, on a spatial scale, it makes sense that adult males are more likely to do this. For a, for a couple of reasons, and the hypothesis would be that if they're covering so much more ground on a linear basis from north to south or east to west because their ranges are so big, for instance, 200 square miles for a male compared to 50 square miles for a female, the, their, their encounter rate, the chances of them coming across a snack of some sort of unprotected, easy game, if you like, is just so much higher. And because, unlike females, their focus isn't so much on food as it is protecting their territories and 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 catching up with the females in their area, they, they aren't really interested in food so much. They're just walking along is the way I imagine it. They, they cover, you know, 10 miles or 15 miles and as a result are covering hundreds of properties in our area they can pick and choose whenever they like to stop and go, oh, well, there's a cat, there's a, um, a sheep, and they're pretty much all unprotected. Um, you know, so they don't even have to think about where they're going to get their next meal. The opportunities are everywhere. Exactly. And, and, and um, you know, if you remove that animal, um, it doesn't change the underlying issue that whatever other mountain lion comes into that area – um, it's going to be doing exactly the same thing. Wow. So this is slightly different than what we face here in that, you know, the, the, the big adult males, they tend to stay away from livestock because they have so much 
more space to roam, as you had said, without encountering hobby farmers and and people. So, and it ends up being the females and the cubs, the orphan cubs, that end up encountering pets and that kind of thing because they're unskilled and they don't know the territory. So this is very interesting in that California is very different and for how many lions that you know you have. So um, I'd like to ask a question which sort of gets a little bit more into your specialty here. Um, you'd made a comment that the mountain lion is an overgrown mesopredator versus <laughs> what we think of as a big cat, uh, lion, tiger, leopard. Um, let's just talk about that for a minute because it might help <coughs> Excuse me, folks understand a bit more of the mentality of the lion mind. Well, it's it's fascinating to me because when you know coming having worked with African large cats, you know, uh, having worked with African large cats and you know actual um, apex predators um, in in systems, you know, um, uh, the leopard, for instance, is a is a completely different animal to a mountain lion. You know when when approaching a leopard in a in a um, sort of close encounter situation, like you know, if we're doing foot snare or cable restraint um, trapping, or even in a cage, you know the the first response that a leopard has when you when you encounter it is that it you know wants to attack you and wants to pretty much kill you, um, and a mountain lion in most cases typically just wants to get away and cowers in in the back of the cage or, or moves away and you know is is um, a significantly less intimidating animal than than um, a leopard or uh, a jaguar for instance um, so the history of mountain lions um, kind of puts it into perspective and, and it makes sense. First of all, um, you know, mountain lions are their closest relative genetically, I suppose, would be a cheetah. They're not actual big cats, um, you know, in, in the true sense of the word because they lack the sort of the um, hyoid apparatus that, um, that leopards and lions and, and jaguars would have, for instance. So they're, they're large felines, or, um, but, you know, 10 or 12,000 years ago, these cats were sharing a landscape in North America with, with real apex predators, and those would have been the American lion, uh, Panthera atrox, and the, the um, saber-toothed cats. And, you know, you had a sort of whole guild of, of um, large predators and... and, um, and um, megafauna that that these lions were inhabiting this area with and um you know the the american lion for instance was you know huge um compared to a mountain lion you know six to eight hundred pounds or something like that and at that stage twelve thousand years ago or fifteen thousand years ago these these cats would have been the miso predator now miso means intermediate and and um, you know even though they you know large in size they would have always been looking over their shoulder and worrying about these bigger predators out there um, 
threatening them. And, and that 15 or 12,000 years is very little um, in, in, the, in the evolutionary, um, from an evolutionary point of view for mountain lions. You know, and after, with the, with the, after the glacial period when, when these cats, with the big cats went extinct in North America, so did mountain lions at that stage it seems, and, and they started migrating back into North America when conditions must have improved, and they re-inhabited a landscape where suddenly, you know, this, this area was devoid of these really large predators, and, and, and suddenly they have now fulfilled more of a role of the large apex predator, if you like. However, they haven't um, really adopted the attitude of these large cats. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. So, therefore, being a mesopredator, uh, their prey is typically smaller than what an actual big cat would go after. Well, yes and or have no. They, or have I, they evolved to take down big prey and, and fill a niche along with wolves? I, I think that, you know, well, first of all, there were larger prey available um, to the larger predators um, during the time that they were around. So, yes, in, in a sense, um, you know, they, um, the, the mountain lions, well, the mountain lions, I think, would have been taking the same size prey. Deer-sized animals are the perfect prey size for mountain lions and, and remain sort of the key prey species for them across their, uh, their range in North America. Um, but, um, you know, 15,000 years ago, there would have been a lot of much larger animals available in the landscape that, that the, the bigger predators would have been focusing on um, more than, than um, deer, I would imagine. Well, you mentioned two things. So one, I want to step back a minute. You said a difference in between the lions, African lions, and the leopard is a hyoid difference. Now, does, does that mean the, the uh, roar versus the call and an ability to purr or not? Yes, it's the, it's the, the big cats or the roaring cats, I suppose, you know, is one way of um, how you describe them. And, and um, mountain lions are unable to do that. Um, the... Uh, you know, um, mountain lion offspring, or you know, their their young are called kittens, versus the the big cats are called cubs. Although I don't think there's anything wrong in calling mountain lion kittens cubs because they're you know they're big cats. And yeah. um, but I mean, it's kind of it's been it kind of alludes to the fact that they're not really big cats, so to speak. <laughs> Well, especially when you're compa- when you're comparing, you know, between two different continents and what cats we have now, and yeah. what you just explained in yeah. terms of evolution, we lost ours. So for now, the mountain lion is our biggest little cat. So well, um, except for the jaguar, of course, which is true. just popping just popping into America in the in the in the desert areas down south. But yes, effectively. Um, you know, uh, it is, and um, but it still keeps that timid sort of um, attitude, and and you can really see it, even though they're unbelievably capable predators. You know, you can just see that um, through the statistics of human interactions of how few 
um, human fatalities there have been regard, regarding mountain lions. Um, but so, these cats are not, you know, they, they really want to avoid any conflict if at all possible. And, which, is, which is comparable to the cheetah. Correct. Yeah. And what's also interesting, you know, are there um, feeding um, habits? I, I find it interesting to see that when a mountain lion caches its kill, um, its daytime bedding sites are usually away from the kill. And that may very well be a reflection of that, that um, uh, being nervous of being caught on a kill by something bigger. Um, you know, thinking back 15,000 years, you would have had, um, all, you know, a much larger pro- population of bears. Like in California, um, you know, we, we find in our area, we don't have many bears, but in other parts of California, bears scavenge um, uh, mountain lion uh, from mountain lions on a regular basis, and in one study at the moment, you know, uh, researchers have recorded a hundred percent scavenging rate from uh, uh, that that bears have been scavenging mountain lion kills, which is phenomenal. So, so it just shows you that these guys, you know, they they they're not going to stand their ground when something else comes along. Um, and they just get pushed off, just like cheetah would be. So that sort of segues us into what we can um, cover in our next section is human lion encounters. We've got just a, a couple minutes left here. The other point you had mentioned was deer is the per, are the perfect predators, uh, excuse me, prey for the mountain lion. So as we bring in more deer to our urban landscapes, because we like seeing them and some people even feed them, naturally what is going to follow in this um, octagon of territory that you described is going to be a lot of deer and those deer come into our habitations closer because it gives them everything they need food water and perceived security so the lion's going to follow right well you see this in our area in our study area in northern california it's a little different in that Humans have encroached, you know, people have encroached on these wild areas. So if you look at a satellite image of Northern California, for instance, you would see there's a lot of nice dark green areas in the hills and that sort of thing. And you go like, wow, that looks like really great habitat out there. There's lots of natural vegetation and everything. When you you zoom into that, um, and you look at you know parcel maps and things like that. You you re- start realizing that that natural area is in fact littered with tens of thousands of properties and and homes and people living on that natural landscape. So the lions were always there, and the the deer were always there. Um, and what's happened now is that when you look at a parcel map of this area you can you can see that each of these small parcels represents um, a fragmented landscape because the, the 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 parcels are you know all of these parcels are or most of them are fenced and the fences don't bother the mountain lions at all because they can jump any of these fences quite easy but they're fences that vineyard landowners have to keep deer out of um the vineyards, and then there are fences that landowners have that they want to keep the deer from feeding on their roses or their their, their special gardens. 
But what happens is is that this you know this landscape has become incredibly fragmented. Um, as I say, not not for mountain lions, but for the deer, and and um, in a way, yeah, yeah, there we one would expect that there is a lot of um, um, change in the vegetation that attracts deer, or that allows deer to stay in the area for a longer period and get more re- resources. Um, because of these, because of this vegetation that is not natural to the area. However, at the same time, the deer are being channeled or blocked um, off because of these fences. And it's and we expect, um, and from our research, there is certainly a suggestion that the the fences are having an influence on mountain lion hunting success or foraging success because um, it, it makes sense that it would be easier to to um, trap these these um, deer against fences, for instance. Um, alternatively, these these smaller properties can become, as you mentioned, like a haven for, like there's nice food in that patch and it attracts the lions there. But the lions have always been here and they move about over all of these properties um, and have always done so. It's just that they're, they're given opportunities on a, in a different way now because of the fencing and the fragmentation of this landscape. This is absolutely fascinating. So right there you, you was a, a, a big bite for everybody to understand. The change in the landscape, the fracturing of the landscape, and sort of, I'll call them artificial but real corridors where the prey now moves because it can't get into other spaces. So we're going to step away and take a little bit of a break. Stick with us because we're going to talk with Quentin about how we humans can um, deal with these uh, interactions and conflicts with lions and some of what uh, the alternatives to euthanasia is. So we'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Dr. Quinton Martins, one of the leading experts in not only leopards, the Cape Mountain Leopard of Africa, but our USA uh, mountain lion, cat of many names. So he's been studying mountain lions and is the uh, principal investigator for the project Living with Lions in the North Bay area of California. And um, over the, the course of this episode, we've discussed the various factors and uh, challenges that are found where Quentin works. So, Quentin, um, the mountain lions, from what I'm understanding you're saying, the mountain lions in your area, the North Bay area, they live a rather, rather fragile existence due to the fracturing of this landscape and how the prey moves and their interactions with all the people that are now in their habit habitats um, in large landscapes, yet still fractured with pets or small farms and hobby farmers, as you described them. So how do you actually study the mountain lions in your area? Our main focus has been to, to um, monitor mountain lions here through tracking um, using GPS, satellite GPS collars, which um, requires the uh, capture and you know, the handling of these, these cats. Um, and in California, uh, we limited to a couple of methods of doing, uh, doing this. Um, and that is either to use hounds or, or um, cage capture methods. Um, the use of, of cable restraints was outlawed, um, despite many large cat researchers knowing that it's a, it's a really effective and safe tool to use. Um, so we've been limited to, to using cages and, and hounds, and in... In our area, because it's so fragmented and that there are just so many small properties, the use of hounds simply um, isn't feasible at all. Um, And um, as a result, we've been limited to using um, cage cage trap methods. And, sorry. 
I was just going to say, how do you find the li- the lions are mostly collared, correct? Correct. So, so we need to find, you know, we need to find where they're moving, get an idea where they're moving, and then, in in the case of cage cage trapping, we would put baits out, um, and then after we we find a, a mountain lion feeding on the bait, um, we would then put a trap out, um, put the put the remains of that bait inside the cage, and then um, wait for the cat to go in and trap it and then immobilize it um, once, you know, once the cat's in the cage. And we usually stand by and have a response time of about a half an hour to an hour um, to get to the cat from when it goes in the cage. So we have many advanced sort of um, trap monitoring uh, uh, um, means such as um, cell phone cameras and satellite trap transmitters and things like that. But the but in our area, you know, we found, and this has um, been mirrored in in other areas similar to ours, where where baiting is actually a real pain out here. You know, we we use roadkill deer, and and the lions sometimes they'll feed on the bait and then they simply don't come back, and you know the baits degrade quickly and it's difficult to find bait. Um, so there are all these challenges that the, you know the baits get fed on by vultures, which are you know in this area prolific winter and summer we have a lot of vultures feeding on on our carcasses um, and sometimes bears scavenging the carcasses so I I ended up um, coming up with a, a trapping method here which um, I used in South Africa on leopards um, and that was using a walkthrough cage um, type trap which was where you don't where you don't have to use bait at all um, and um, basically, the, you put the trap on a trail, and the cat walks just walks through it because they see it as being some kind of tunnel. And and then once the, they um, go into the trap, the doors close from either side. Um, but because we're in California, of course, in Silicon Valley and everything, you know, I upgraded this cage significantly here, working um, with a partner of mine, Neil Martin, um, and we we. Um, we came up with an electronic version of this because it was a little bit more basic in, in South Africa. And we use ultrasonic sensors and timing mechanisms and all of that to activate the cage. So we can actually determine the size of the animal walking through the cage um, to ensure that, that um, we're being more selective. So only a mountain lion-sized animal will trigger the cage, uh, will trigger the cage um, if, um, so you're if, tracking all of this in kind of real time. Correct. We're doing this all in real time kind of thing. And and um, basically the, the cage is set. And if a fox walks through the cage, because the, the um, ultrasonic sensors are set for a particular height of the animal, then, um, you know, the, the cage won't trigger. So we won't have non-target species being caught. And only when a mountain lion walks through will the the cage trigger and so it's, it's been really exciting to see so we don't have to use collect baits and things like that um, for this sort of method and we can just put these cages out and then monitor them um, you know all the time and be on standby pretty much every night this is fascinating so um, and, and these cages how big are they and then where um, t- 
typically do you put them? In these corridors where the deer are running between fences? Or do you have citizen science participating and people calling you, your volunteers and your outreach? How does it all fit into this? Well, we, we, um, we find the, you know, we, we have a, you know, after years of experience, you kind of get to know which trails and things like that are best to put these cages on. So we, you know, very target specific and we, we look for signs of these cats to, to validate whether these areas are, are good. But we, we do rely on sightings and the public and, and, you know, the, the outreach components of the project has been, um, a very important part of what we're doing. You know, the on the one hand, we've got the science, which is extremely important to validate what we're sharing with the public um, and giving us the, the credibility um, by publish, publishing in peer-reviewed journals and things like that. Um, but the the outreach component, in my mind, is is one of the most important components of this project because typically in America... In this particular field, for instance, a lot of the work um, that has been done in the past has been done by institutions, academic institutions, which which don't usually have the mandate of, of sharing this information in a popular form with the public. You know, alternatively, have been done by um, government departments, which you know um, again have complications in that there, is, there might be um, a bend or a lean towards um, you know, the particular demographic that they're catering to. And um, the, the work that we're doing is, um, I think, unique in that it's, it's really providing um, a focus on getting the information out to a broader, broader public. And, and California, you know, one of the reasons why I came to California is um, particularly you know Northern California is a very exciting place to be. You've got such an incredible demographic here uh, to work with people that come up with the most amazing ideas um, that end up being leading tech um, ideas or companies that emerge in the world. So you, one has um, a lot of opportunities. Know, a lot of opportunities. To do it differently. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that through this mountain lion project, you know, the kind of outreach that we're doing, we, we want to be able to reach to as many people as possible and not kind of preach to the converted. We also want to leverage off the intellectual and financial resources of people that live in, in um, this area to help us to build or to a perfecter model of conservation that would have a more significant impact on our environment. My my sense is that you know, and my attitude and my focus is 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 that this project, living with lions, is not about lions so much as finding a way to improve on how we do habitat conservation and and the living with lions component is you know this focus on coexisting. Um, coexistence with lions, but also wildlife um, as a whole, and how important you know our natural world is. So, so the having this opportunity of working here and and you know getting um, this message out there and working in an area where there's such interesting and amazing people, 
I feel um, does create an amazing opportunity for for not just mountain lion conservation, but but an opportunity to change the face of conservation on a global scale because, you know, the world is in a bit of a mess, unfortunately, and we don't want to get too depressed about it because, um, you know, it's a, it's a reality. But, um, you know, whatever we've been doing, uh, you know, in the past, despite uh, the amazing work before me and, and that, uh, you know, in, in all of these sectors, we still haven't done it right and we haven't done enough of it in the right way compared to how well businesses and corporates have done in in exploiting people or using, you know, making people buy things that they don't need and that we need to get people to buy into conservation um, because it's it's this investment in our future that is is so important and, and businesses are beginning to cotton on to this because if the world's going to, if we're not going to have the resources like clean air and clean water in 30 years' time, that's a pretty short-term business model. So they need to really get on board with us, help us in doing this job because we, we're not marketing people. We're biologists and that, you know. So we, we need their help in getting this message out there to change the way people um, behave and, and, um, and the outcomes will be more positive, I believe. Well, very well said, because as I've always said in my conservation work and on this program, conservation is about people. Um, Wildlife does what it does, and if there were no people, we probably wouldn't have problems nor need conservation. So it really is about our attitudes. And as you'd said, what we've been doing is showing that it has not been fully successful. So we are at a prime opportunity on the razor's edge of paradigm shift to do it differently because of so much um, experience under our belts you coming from africa and having that experience to apply to the mountain lions in california and hopefully elsewhere across the state that this can be replicated not the state states western states that it can be replicated and that the um, the people it's a behavioral mindset that challenged that that we're facing to make conservation of the future work. So you're absolutely correct. And just to bring this down to a little reality moment, um, there were two lions recently that um, got your name in the newspaper in communities so that it seems your outreach is working. Um, One in Santa Rosa, I believe it was outside a shopping mall, Macy's, and uh, they called you. And um, then another one that you were called into to move, euthanize, not euthanize, excuse me, um, sedate, tranquilize, and move these lions. So that means your outreach is working in particular areas, yeah? Um, Well, the, the, um, yes, I mean, I think the outreach on our part, I mean, has certainly um, brought more attention to mountain lions, and we've been been, um, called in in many more cases. Um, just in those cases, I mean, we, the the mountain lion in Santa Rosa, uh, in the mall, so it was a very young individual, which, um, because of its age, um, it was it was it made sense to relocate it out of the the city and into a, a natural area. It was it was, um, you know, as a dispersal, the risks that it has would be the same. Um, you know, putting it anywhere but um, as long as it's within the same genetic population we think it's fine and you know we we don't typically relocation is not a good um, option for 
um, carnival, like um, carnivals like mountain lions, things like that, particularly the adults. Um, and it's in fact a lot worse to relocate adults. Um, but we had, we we've um, we've had. Um, One second. It's difficult and not a good idea to relocate adults because you're moving them in to someone else's territory. Well, correct. It's actually like a double whammy, um, really. If you take an adult male mountain lion out of its territory, you know, if you if you relocate it, um, you would. It's not familiar. You would need to put it into another area where um, mountain lions occur. So what you're doing is is you, you you're causing double the amount of damage really because you're plonking this this um, adult territorial cat into an area where there's an existing um, population of mountain lions and it is going to have an impact on those lions and maybe kill cubs that it finds or have fights with the feet of the males or you know um, interact in a negative way in in that new system and where you've removed it from it has the same effect as if you killed the animal there at the time. So that vacuum that you've created simply draws in mountain lions, um, either dispersing cats that are looking for a gap or looking for a place to to, to go into, and um, where you had one mountain lion trying to keep other mountain lions out, you may very well end up with um, with more than one mountain lion, you know, for a period of time. Um, inhabiting that area until that, that they settle down and, and fight out who's going to have that territory. Um, so it's, a, it's not a very good thing, relocation. Well, Quinton, this has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. I could talk to you for hours on this subject, but unfortunately we're out of time for today. So, um, And I know you've got to get going. You're a very busy guy. So um, I thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. Perhaps we can talk more. But meantime, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Eddie. Thank you. It's great. And uh, we will help get the message out. And uh, hopefully the the resources for the future and your outreach project and program, Living with Lions, will have great success moving forward. So meanwhile, listeners, go out into your wild world. And if you're in California and come across a mountain lion, Please call Living with Lions, visit their website, um, or reach out to Quentin Martins. And uh, you can look it up, Living with Lions, and the Audubon Conservation uh, Program uh, website. So once again, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you next week and check out your wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 